Would you join me in prayer? God, we stand in awe of your faithfulness to us. You've pardoned our sin through Jesus. He took on flesh. He lived a righteous life. He took the penalty we deserve. He resurrected from death. Lord, we stand in awe. God, we stand in awe of your great faithfulness. Your mercy is new every morning. Daily we sin. We fall short. We break your heart. And daily your son's blood covers the sins of those who trust in you. Lord, we stand in awe. This morning we ask for kids that are going to camp this week. God, we ask as the gospel is taught that you would bring life and transformation to the children of First Free. Would you guide Pastor Jordan's words as he teaches at kids camp? God, we ask for students that are going as counselors to these kids. Would you give them words to share of who you are and what you've done to save these kids from their sins? Would you bring these kids to a knowledge of your love, grace, and mercy? This morning we ask for our missions partners, L and J. God, we are saddened for the unrest that they have seen in Central Asia. And we pray for them as they return to the United States. God, would you help them to remember your great faithfulness in their transition? And would you provide for the needs of L and J? And God, as we open your word this morning, would you give us clarity on who Jesus is? Would you help us to trust him as provider? Would you help us to believe that he is the solution to our fears? God, would you help us to trust your son as God? And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, First Free. My name is Jordan Cron. I'm the student ministries pastor. I wanted to say thank you this morning for everyone who, who gave generously to send uh, me and the team of high school students that went to Miami. Thanks for everyone who, who prayed for us and the opportunities that we had to share the gospel while we were there. If you had gotten to be a, a, a bug or bird on my shoulders, I don't know what the analogy is, but you would have been really proud of getting to see students do ministry in Miami. Uh, they were confident in sharing the gospel and building relationships with the kids and teaching lessons and in sharing their testimonies. It was really awesome to see our students step up and to share Christ to the children that we were ministering to. Uh, we got to wrestle through our own call for missions. Has God called us to be goers or senders? Because those are really the only two options for those who trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And one of the APEC staff members that, that was helping to facilitate our time there uh, said about the team of high school students that they are raising up and doing greater things than I thought possible for a high school group. We just praise God for how First Free has been a place of gospel transformation and preparation for our time in Miami when we got to share the gospel together with this team. And would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 14. We're going to be on in verses 13 to 33. So if you've got the Pew Bible in front of you, you want to take that out, and it's going to be on page 820 in that Pew Bible. 
And for a little bit of review, this last week, uh, Pastor Dirk walked us through a passage where we saw the rejection of those who God sent. Uh, We saw the rejection of Jesus, Jesus even being rejected in his hometown. We saw the rejection of John the Baptist. He was rejected for speaking against Herod. He called Herod to repentance. And these rejections ultimately anticipated Jesus' ultimate rejection where Jesus died on the cross for our, pen, for our sins, paying the penalty that you and I deserve. So this week, as we look at Matthew 14, we're going to get clarity as to who Jesus is. Clarity as to who Jesus is. And, and here's a, an illustration that I thought it would be helpful to, to open up our time this morning. Have you ever been uh, going about your day, about your time, and you saw someone and you thought, I think I know you. You might ask a few questions when you see someone and have this thought. You might think, did we go to school together? Or were you a, a former neighbor? May, maybe at some point we worked together. I, I'm not sure if I can quite place you, but I, I think I know you. And then after asking a ser- series of these questions, you, you have the light bulb come on. Uh, uh, things fully come into focus, and then you realize this is who you are. I have this question constantly, and it's usually in pertaining to, I think I'm related to you. (laughs) Like, maybe you're a distant cousin. Maybe one of those thousand family reunions we went to growing up, maybe I saw you there. And if I'm in the Whitewater area, typically I'm correct, because somehow I'm related to everyone in the Whitewater area. This experience also happened to me when my son Jude was born. You know that those times when you're sleepy and groggy and you can't remember anything. I mean, your IQ is up here and it's all of a sudden down here because of the long and sleepless nights with a new child. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, but there I am on the elevator and I'm going back up to the room. I think I just got breakfast for, for me and for the family. Um, and then the nurse next to me, really perky, says, Hi, Jordan. And I, I turned, and, and I don't have much of a filter, but, but my response was, hi? <laughs> and obviously I, I hid well uh, the fact that I had no idea who this was. I, I recognized her, I thought I could place her, but I couldn't quite. Um, and so she asked me, do you remember me? <laughs> the answer was, I, I think so. <laughs> no. Um, then she said, we had several classes together in high school. Oh, the light bulb came on. Things come into, came into focus. And I remembered, this is who you are. So today, the disciples are going to get clarity as to who Jesus is. We're going to see the light bulb come on for them. Things will come into focus for Jesus' disciples. And this is what we're going to see this morning as we look at our text. Jesus has authority as God. Five simple words for our big idea this morning. Jesus has authority as God. And here's what we're going to see as we're reading through Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 33. So, so pay attention to the structure because you'll, you'll want to kind of spot this as we're reading through the passage here in a minute. Um, but, but here's what we'll see as we're walking through our passage. We're going to see Jesus withdraw then a problem is going to arise, and then Jesus is going to provide a solution. And then we're going to do a repeat of that again. There's going to be Jesus withdrawing, there'll be a problem that arises, and then Jesus provides a solution. 
and then we'll tie things off with a shocking conclusion at the end of our passage. So let's read together Matthew 14 verses 13 to 33. And if you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? Starting in verse 13, Matthew writes this. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to, something to eat. They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And Jesus said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. Verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So first this morning, we're going to look at the feeding of the 5,000. Once again, we're going to see Jesus withdraw. We're going to see a problem and we're going to see a solution. And here is the first main point. If you're taking notes for us this morning, it's this, that Jesus is able to provide. Jesus is able to provide. So before we jump into the feeding of the 5,000, I want to answer a specific question. If you're reading ahead, you might have noticed in the next chapter, we see Jesus feeding 4,000. So the question is, why does Jesus feed 4,000 people in the very next chapter? It seems a little bit redundant. Is Matthew telling the same miracle again, but with a little bit different details? Why the repeat? Well, as you're following along reading in the Gospel of Matthew, there's no error in these two stories. These are two different occasions. But there's a very different purpose for the telling of the feeding of the 4,002. 
So as we're following along, don't be confused by the same two stories or similar two stories, but stay tuned for a different story with a different purpose that's very similar to the one that we're seeing here this morning. So our text begins with Jesus' withdrawal. So why does Jesus withdraw? What's his motivation? In verse 13, when it says that Jesus heard this, it's Matthew looking back. He's looking back to what Herod heard in verse 1. And there in verse 1, in chapter 14, we see that Herod heard about Jesus. He heard about Jesus' fame. He heard about Jesus' reputation. And Herod thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist back from the dead. And it's a leadership problem. If the guy you've just killed is walking around and he is fine and dandy. So Jesus is a threat to Herod. And Jesus leaves to protect himself from Herod. But where does he go? Matthew doesn't fill in the details of Jesus' destination. He doesn't tell us where Jesus is headed. But we see in verse 13 that Jesus withdraws from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. He's alone with his disciples. He crosses the lake to be with his followers. And it seems that he's likely there to pray. So is Jesus able to be by himself? Can Jesus be alone? If you read the Gospels, Jesus always draws a crowd. People can't help but follow Jesus. Jesus and crowds are kind of like me and chocolate ice cream. We always go together. And so in verse 14, a crowd shows up before Jesus does, and Jesus has compassion on them, and he heals their sick. So Jesus withdraws, the crowds show up, and let's see the problem that arises in verses 15 to 17. The problem begins with the need. There's a need to feed the hungry crowds. They've traveled far, they came to see Jesus, they've stayed to be healed, and so in verse 15, the disciples tell Jesus, send the crowds away, that'll meet the need. They'll find food for themselves. But Jesus recommends a solution to the need. In verse 16, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. So let's pause for a minute. Let's consider the numbers. There's 5,000 men. There's likely 20,000 men, women, and children. And Jesus, he acts like there's some great storehouse of food. Jesus essentially says, we've got what we need to feed them. So here we see the central problem in the first part of our text. The disciples don't believe in Jesus's power. They don't recognize Jesus's authority. Take a look. Verse 17, it says this. We have only five loaves here and two fish. Jesus, we don't have the food. We can't feed the crowds. Jesus, we're not Walmart. We're not Texas Roadhouse. We can't feed them. And so this leads us to the solution that we see in verses 19 to 20. Here we see Jesus' demonstration of authority. In verse 19, Jesus tells the crowds to sit down on the grass and then says a blessing. The disciples then give the five loaves and two fish to the crowd. And so Jesus here in the text, he's taking charge. He's acting like a standard Jewish head of household. And Jesus 
feeds the crowds. But he doesn't just feed the crowds. He is miraculously feeding the crowds in the story. Jesus takes a little lunch and uses it to feed 20,000 people. This is a miracle. Jesus is able to provide. He has the authority to provide. So here's what we see in verses 13 to 21 with the feeding of the 5,000 for a little review. Jesus withdraws because of Herod. He heals the crowds that come to him. The crowds come hungry. The disciples think they should leave. Jesus tells them to feed the crowds. The disciples only have a little lunch, five loaves and two fish. So Jesus takes the loaves and fish and Jesus miraculously provides for some 20,000 men, women, and children. Jesus demonstrates unparalleled authority and Jesus provides. He is able to provide. But what does Jesus' authority to provide, what does this mean for us today? What's the relevance for us in 2021 for Jesus' authority to provide? Well, there's a few ways that this could have relevance for us. Some of us wrestle with God's provision of a child. Will God give us kids? Some of us worry about God's provision of health. Will God heal me? Some of us are anxious about God's provision of salvation for friends and family. Will God save my prodigal kids? But here's one that I want to focus on in particular. I want to speak to those of us who are struggling with finances. Many of us look at our bank accounts and doubt God's provision. Will God give me the finances we need? Will he give me the bonus I need? Will he give me the sales numbers for a certain paycheck? Will God provide? So we download budgeting apps. We stare at our bank accounts until our eyes are red. We toss and turn at nights full of anxiety and full of worry about how our accounts are in the red. But for those who are struggling in finances, we must remember who we are in the gospel. Jesus, if you believe in him, he bore our sins, died our death, rose from the dead, and through faith in him, through trust in him, we are united to Jesus in an unseen, miraculous way. If you know Jesus, if you've trusted Jesus, you are joined to him, you are one with him, so that when God sees the believer, he does not see you, he sees Jesus. Why? Because in the gospel, we become one with him by faith in him. And for those struggling with finances, the Jesus you're united to he is strong to provide. He is able to provide. Jesus took, took five loaves and two fish and fed some 20,000 people. He provided. The Jesus we're one with is able to give us exactly what we need. He's strong over all creation. He's sovereign over all things. And he's working all things for the good of those who love him. But it's important for us to reflect on this. Jesus as faithful provider doesn't mean you won't lose your job. It doesn't mean you won't lose your house. It doesn't mean you won't fall flat on your face financially. But the Jesus you're one with is faithful to provide exactly what you need. He has authority to provide what we need. We must trust him.
So first we saw the feeding of the 5,000. We saw Jesus's authority to provide. We're again going to see Jesus withdraw. We're going to see a problem. And then we're going to see a solution. And we'll see our second main point when Jesus walks on the water, which is this. That Jesus is the solution to our fears. Jesus is the solution to our fears. Okay, so our next section It begins with Jesus withdrawing again. In verse 22, he made the disciples and the crowds leave. Jesus wants them to go away. He gives them the boot. Then in verse 23, Jesus went up on the mountainside by himself to pray. Jesus gets away by himself. He spends time with his heavenly father. And this sets in motion our second problem. So our problem begins in verse 24 with the disciples being a long way from the land. There it says that they are beaten by the waves for the wind is against them. They're struggling to cross the lake. There's a great wind keeping them from crossing and it's an uphill battle for our disciples in the text. And then in the midst of the storm, something astonishing happens. Jesus walks on water. In verse 25, it says that it's the fourth watch of the night that Jesus came to them walking on the sea. Jesus comes to the boat at some point between 3 and 6 a.m. And Jesus demonstrates, once again, power over creation. He demonstrates authority over creation. Jesus himself is walking on the sea. And the shocking authority of Jesus brings us to our first problem. The disciples fear a ghost. They fear a spirit. They're not trusting in the Jesus they've been with. In verse 26, it says that they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. The disciples forget the one they've been with. They've been with Jesus who multiplies food. They've been with Jesus who does mighty works. They've been with Jesus who heals the sick time and time again. They've been with the one who demonstrates incredible power. But at the first opportunity, the disciples are overwhelmed. They're terrified. Rather than faith in the one that they've been with, they run to fear. And so Jesus tells his disciples not to fear. He reassures them that it's him and they regain their composure. And Jesus again demonstrates authority over creation. Peter asks Jesus in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And Jesus tells Peter to come. And Peter joins Jesus walking on the water. Not only can Jesus walk on the water, but Jesus enables Peter to walk on the water too. Jesus demonstrates unparalleled authority in enabling Peter to to walk on the water. And here's where we see our problem again. Peter chooses fear over faith in Jesus. In verse 30, Peter saw the wind and he was afraid. Peter fears the wind. He's afraid of the storm. He's afraid of the sea. And he forgets that he's with Jesus. And it's because of this fear that Jesus, sorry, that Peter begins to sink. So what's the solution? What does Jesus do for our disciples that choose fear over faith in him? Jesus rescues Peter. In verse 31, Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him. Jesus saves Peter from sinking. Jesus then challenges Peter. He has a hard word for him and by way of him, the disciples as well, when he says, Oh, you of little faith, 
Why did you doubt? Jesus demonstrated great power, but Peter's faith was little. Jesus showed great might over creation, but Peter's faith was small. Peter fears the wind rather than trusting in Jesus. And Peter reminds, sorry, Jesus reminds them that he is the solution to our fears. So let's do a little overview. In the second section, Jesus makes the disciples to cross the lake. He withdraws to pray. While crossing the lake, they say Jesus on the water. The disciples fear a ghost. And then while walking on the water, Peter fears the wind. The disciples choose fear over faith in Jesus. And Jesus calls them to faith in him. Jesus reminds them that he is the solution to our fears. Now, Jesus being the solution to our fears reminds me of my son Jude. I love using my family as object lessons. I also asked permission of him this time, by the way. I said, Jude, could I, could I share about your fear of dogs? And Jude, Jude said, you need to tell him it right. It's crazy dogs that I'm afraid of. Oh, crazy dogs. So all the dogs. Um, but Jude has a, fr- a fear of crazy dogs. These dogs could be out of control, six foot tall Labradors that are ready to pounce him at a moment's notice. These, these crazy dogs could be a giant bull mastiff that could tear him um, without even trying. Uh, but these crazy dogs also include little wiener dogs that are about eight inches tall and run quickly. You know, they're the, the silky terriers that are really small and like put their feet up on his, his knees. Um, and when Jude encounters these crazy dogs, he comes running to, to dad. Um, and he does one of those things where, where he, he runs to me and he, you know, grabs the, the hands around my, uh, around my leg and, le- and legs around my leg. It's like a fireman's pull, but instead of going down, he's trying to go up. Um, he, he grabs onto my shirt and he's pulling and pulling. I'm like, it's, it's a chihuahua. Like, buddy, I can sit on it and take care of it. Like, it's kind of small. It's okay. It's not, a, it's not that crazy of a dog. Um, but Jude knows one thing. Daddy is the solution to my fears. And similarly, Jesus is the solution to our fears. So what does this demonstration of Jesus' authority mean for us? What's it matter that he is the solution to our fears? The wind that we fear in our lives constantly takes our eyes off Jesus. There's fears of illness, relational loss, finances once again. And these are rational fears. But these fears take our eyes off Jesus so regularly. Here's one, in, one fear in particular I'd like us to talk about. For some of us, it's the fear of the future of our nation that takes our eyes off Jesus. There's so many things to fear about this. We see the decay of families the proliferation of sex, the questioning of things that we'd never imagined being questioned, the normalization of abortion, and we think, where is our nation headed? What future is there for my kids or my grandkids? Can't we just go back? To be clear, there's so much to fear about what's going on with our nation. But what is it that you do with that fear? Do you obsessively read the news, rail against political enemies, and lose hope? 
Is this wind taking your eyes off Jesus? Or do we run to the one who has real authority? We need to remember the Jesus that we look to. Jesus is the one who rules over all of creation. He can walk on the water. He can enable others to walk on the water. He can feed thousands with a few loaves and fish. He created all things, rules over all things. He even rules over the future of our nation. We must trust Jesus. So we've seen how Jesus has authority to provide. We've seen that his authority means that he is the solution to our fears. fears. But how is this? How is he able to provide? How can he be the solution to our fears? And this brings us to our third main point, that Jesus is worshipped as God. So the disciples' action tells us where Jesus gets his authority. In verse 33, it says that Jesus is worshipped. And I want you to see two things about the disciples' worship of Jesus. The first thing is this. This is an ongoing theme in Matthew that Jesus is worshipped. It's 11 times in Matthew that people are said to kneel before Jesus in reverence. People are constantly bowing before Jesus in awe. But this is the first instance of the disciples worshiping Jesus. The second thing I want you to see is this, that there is a stark contrast in this passage to the conclusion of when Jesus calmed the storm in Matthew chapter 8, verse 27. You can, you can flip there, hold your finger there and flip over there. Just listen to me. I'll read it to you. But there in Matthew chapter 8, um, verse 27, there we see when Jesus calms the storm, the disciples say this, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Earlier in Matthew, the disciples thought Jesus merely to be some great man. But here in our text, we see clarity as to who Jesus is. The light bulb has come on. The disciples here are praising Jesus as God. They're glorifying him as God. They're exalting him as God. And Jesus in our text, he doesn't stop them. He doesn't say, hold your horses, disciples. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not God. Jesus receives worship as God. Our disciples' action also builds on what Jesus previously said in our passage. I didn't address it at the time, um, but in in the previous verses in chapter 14, verse 27, um, there we see Jesus say these words. Jesus says, it is I, and then don't be afraid. And so at an initial glance, we might not get much from that language, but it's actually really important for us to pause and reflect on. Jesus first, in hinting himself to be God, says that it is I language. And another way to translate it is I is in verse 27 is I am. And so when Jesus says, I am, he's borrowing God's words from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 14. And there we see the Lord God call himself I am in the Old Testament. And here in our passage, Jesus is calling himself the I am, hinting at himself being the I am in our passage. So first, Jesus, he says I am as if he's God. And second, with those words, Jesus is also hinting at how he's God in 1427 when he says the fear not language. Mark Dever says that in the book of Isaiah, 
there's 43 instances of God saying, I am followed by the words, fear not. 43 times in the book of Isaiah, God himself says, I am, fear not. So Jesus here in our passage is talking like he's God. Jesus is speaking like he's God. He's using God's words. And so then for the question, how does Jesus have authority to provide the bread in the wilderness? How can Jesus walk on water and be the solution to our fears? Our answer is found in verse 33 when Jesus is worshipped as God. So what's the relevance for Jesus being worshipped as God? Some of us here are really quite thoughtful about Jesus. We consider ourselves to be deep thinkers about him. Now, we, we don't believe in Jesus. We don't, we don't have faith in that miraculous stuff that he resurrected from death. We, we don't believe that he died on the cross to pay for our sins, that we could be forgiven of our sins. Um, but at the same time, we're not bitter about Jesus. We, we don't demonize him. We're really quite compelled by him. We, we think he's a great example. He fed the hungry. Uh, Jesus cared for those who were hurting. He loved sinners. He elevated women. He united people of different races and ethnicities. Or we think of Jesus as a great teacher. He told us to love our neighbors. He taught us to turn the other cheek. He told us not to judge others hypocritically. Jesus, for, for some of us, he, he's simply just a great example or a moral teacher. But Jesus claims to be entirely something more than a good example or moral teacher. Jesus in our passage, he speaks as if he's God. He receives worship as if he is God. If you believe Jesus to be only a good example or a moral teacher, just consider C.S. Lewis's challenge from the book Mere Christianity when he writes this. A man like Jesus, who is merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said, would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left us, left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus in our passage, he receives worship like he's God. He speaks like he's God. We can either worship Jesus as God or reject him as a liar. Jesus being merely a good example or moral teacher is not an option. So in conclusion, we've seen Jesus feed 5,000 people in the wilderness from five loaves and two fish. Jesus has authority to provide. We've seen Jesus walk on the water and rebuke the fear of his disciples. Jesus' authority means he's the solution to our fears. We've seen the disciples gather in the boat and worship Jesus. He is worshiped as God. So let's remember and walk away with the main point of our text. Jesus has authority as God. Jesus has authority of God. Jesus could do amazing things as God incarnate. 
He could walk on water. He could feed thousands with nothing. But Jesus didn't come to simply perform amazing spectacles. As Jesus is God, he had the authority to die on the cross in our place. As God, he had the authority to pay the penalty for our sins. As God, he has the authority to heal the broken relationship with God that you and I have apart from him. We must respond by faith to receive what Jesus has done. We must respond by trust that Jesus, God incarnate, would save us from our sins. Would you join me in praying? God, we thank you. We thank you that in your son, we see a faithful provider. God, we thank you that you clothe us, you feed us, you care for us, and we see you as faithful provider in your son. God, thank you that in your son, we see the solution to our fears. He rules over all of creation. Jesus created all things. He directs all things. He holds all things together at the power of his word. They exist for his glory. God, help us to look to Jesus and not our fears. God, thank you that you saw us in our sin. You saw us in our rebellion, how we had run from you, and you came by sending your son. You sent more than an angel and more than a messenger. You came yourself by sending Jesus. You yourself came by sending your son. Help us to trust him. Help us to believe him. Help us to worship Jesus. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.